You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hi, I'm actor and comedian Griffin Newman. And I'm film critic David Sim. Together, we host Blank Check, a movie podcast where week by week we overanalyze directors' complete filmographies. In each new series, we discuss filmmakers who experience early success and are issued a series of blank checks by Hollywood to make their own crazy passion projects. Now, sometimes those checks clear, and sometimes they bounce, baby. We're joined each week by incredible guests, including actors, writers, and directors. So you can follow Blank Check with Griffin and David on Spotify for new episodes every Sunday. Amy, do you like the month of June? I love the month of June. Well, I do too, and I love it because not only is it the beginning of summer, but it's also Pride Month, and Earwolf is celebrating Pride Month all month long. In fact, they've got a name for it, Paul. Oh, yeah? What is it? We're getting Queer Wolf. That means we are celebrating all the amazing shows on this network that listeners might not even know about. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a show called Homophilia, uh, another one called Query with comedian Cameron Esposito. The best. Uh, getting Curious with the one and only Jonathan Van Ness from Queer Eye. Oh, I love that guy. Oh, he's so good. You know that guy from the first episode of season one wound yeah. up getting married because of Jonathan Van Ness's great advice? I got to say, Jonathan is really showing his talent more than any of the other guys. And I love those other guys. But he's got the skills. He's cutting the hair. I know it. Uh, they're all great. I love them all. Karamo, you're my fave. Anyway, you can laugh your face off while listening to live stand-up from Put Your Hands Together or getting uh, to listen in on the perfect combination of political and pop culture hot takes on Throwing Shade. Uh, great shows, fun people. And in honor of Pride Month, some of our favorite Earwolf shows, we're talking about Comedy Bang Bang, How Did This Get Made? Hey, hey whoa, whoa yeah. Are going to be re-releasing some of their favorite episodes featuring some of the best hilarious LGBTQ guests for free. That's right. So celebrate Pride Month with Earwolf and listen to your favorite LGBTQ shows now. Subscribe to Query, Homophilia, Throwing Shade. Put your hands together or Getting Curious on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. It's 1936, and if you're a man, you can't get married without the proper cuffs on your pants. Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers, in Swing Time. Hello, and welcome to... Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I am Paul Shear. And thank you for listening to our show where we go through the AFI's top 100 films of all time, the 2007 list. And we are four films in. And I got to say, I'm kind of loving it. 
Me too. Everything so far has been so different from each other. But let's talk Wizard of Oz. Uh, you guys were amazing online with all the things that you wrote. And I wanted to read one thing that uh, Tom McMahon wrote. He said the Wizard of Oz book was a political satire of the populist movement in the 1890s. Emerald City was D.C. The straw man is the farmers. The tin man is industrial workers. Lion is William Jennings Bryant. Wizard is President William McKinley. And Dorothy originally wore silver slippers. You know what's kind of fascinating is that when this book came out, I bet everybody at the time totally knew that. They're like, oh, yeah, silver slippers. I know what that means. And watching how a metaphor gets mutated through time to where we were talking last week about how Wizard of Oz becomes Star Wars. I mean, you watch Star Wars and nobody's thinking about silver trade wars. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Williams Jennings Bryan is not embodied in Han Solo, but yet did he actually inspire Han Solo? We don't know. (laughs) Um, Anything interesting you find uh, online from all the people that have been following us on at Unspooled on Twitter. That's right. We have a Twitter account. No big deal. No biggie. Well, I think it's remarkable how many people want your pal, Jason Manzukis to play the Scarecrow. Oh, yeah. He got a lot of Scarecrow votes. I think he would be a very good Scarecrow. Maybe it's the hair or the beard. I don't know. But I would like him to be my Scarecrow, too. I don't know if he'd be as adept at doing the dancing as a Scarecrow did, but uh, I'm willing to give it a shot. I could picture him waving his hands and hollering. <laughs> All right, so we are now into a very interesting film. We are moving to number 90 on the AFI list, which, of course, is Swing Time. This week it is Swing Time, which is, I'm going to call it, a Rogers and Astaire movie. What? Yeah, because that's how Ginger Rogers referred to the group. And there's like that famous quote that's like, yes, Fred Astaire was good, but Ginger Rogers had to do everything backwards and in high heels. And I really watched this movie thinking that the entire time. So I have a, I'm going to be Rogers Astaire-ing it the entire time we talk about this I'm movie. I'm down. I might screw it up because it's really <laughs> hard to rewrite a phrase in my head. But actually thinking about backwards and high heels, I was watching it closely for that too. I thought she mostly danced sideways. <laughs> You're right. That is way harder. The saying should totally be amended. Now, uh, I have never seen this movie. Have you seen this movie? I had never seen this movie. Okay. Did you have an idea of what it was? No, honestly. I guess I'd never really thought of the fact that a Rogers and Astaire movie even had a plot. I just thought you would turn it on and it would be just dancing. It would be like watching YouTube clips. Well, I would argue that this movie has the loosest of plots. I mean, we'll get into that a little bit too. Like, yeah, I've never seen this. I've never seen them. I've seen clips of them online, little clips. And it was Gene Kelly who danced with the vacuum cleaner in that commercial, right? I think it was Gene Kelly. Or maybe it was. (laughs) Um, So my take before... I watched it was, I think that Fred and Ginger are two steel workers during the war who cut loose after a hard day by dancing their hearts out at night. Wait, I'm sorry, Paul. What war do you think was happening in 1936? <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't looking at the, I was just saying <laughs> swing time. And, I, and I, I went with it. I went with my gut. I don't know. Swing music felt like a rebellious kind of a uh, music or something like that. I'm always so interested in that. Like the idea of trying to put yourself in the shoes of when a music was rebellious. Because to me, swing time, swing music is what you just always hear in a really lazy movie when they're like, oh, it's the 1940s. Here's in the mood. Right. And the idea of swing as being this rebellious rock that like the young people are into, the way that jailhouse rock just blew people's minds. Now I wasn't alone. Our listeners also had some ideas about what they thought swing time was about. Take a listen. Hi, this is Shauna. I'm calling from Ireland. Um, I think that Swing Time is probably about Fred Astaire falling in love with someone who initially hates him 
for no discernible reason. Maybe she has like a rich, stuck-up kind of boyfriend. One's rich, one's poor. They find each other through like a threes company kind of uh, confusion. Something about a hotel and some oddball jobs. Something like Footloose, but way before Footloose. Fred Astaire also dancing, sometimes with vacuums. This could have a vacuum in it. I'm guessing not. Ginger Rogers is a time traveler from the future who comes back to the 30s to kill Hitler, who's played by Fred Astaire. I think Swim Time is probably like an old-timey version of Step Up. It's like one of them wants to achieve their dreams or get money or something like that. Uh, I really like your podcast. Thank you. You see, I was not alone. Those were great. The idea that Swing Time is the Rogers and Astaire movie voted into the AFI at yes. number 90. I'm really, it makes me want to watch more Rogers and Astaire movies because yes. I didn't like it that much. What? You didn't and, like it? No. And the idea that this is their best one, I'm like, really? It's their sixth movie. They did 10 movies. Yeah. It wasn't their breakout. It was like one that they just kind of did. And I have like a theory about why this is the one that's in the AFI. Okay, I want to hear it. I'm I'm very curious because my reaction to this movie is very different than yours. Okay. Okay. Oh, all right. All right. This is good. This is good. This is good. So people start saying really early on that that, that Swingtime has the best dance numbers, right. and they're really talking about the ending dance number mm-hmm. where Fred and Rogers dance up and down a staircase. Yes. Uh, which they had to do, I think, like 47 times. Like, wow. Astaire's this crazy perfectionist. Never took holidays off. Never did anything. Was always dancing. Seems like a really lovely guy. <laughs> well, I'm thinking about poor Ginger Rogers in high heels. Like, they say her feet were bleeding by the end of it. Oh, my I mean, God. Heels. Like, it's the yeah. heels. It's the heels thing that kills me more than the backwards. Yeah. But that that number, choreographers at the time were like, it's the best choreography. And I think people are like, oh, yeah. And they just kind of remembered it as being the best choreography. Got it. And then in 2004, it gets voted into the Library of Congress. Okay. This list gets put together in 2007. And I think people are just kind of lazy. And they're like... Oh, yeah, that's the important one, obviously, because they got into the Library of Congress and they kind of – everybody buys into the buzz of the last buzz without – No, really I totally I totally agree with that. Like it's – the word of mouth is stronger than – yeah, because I think a lot of the times in these films, it's like that's the familiar title, right? And that's what gets in. It's not that someone watched all seven of their – or ten of their movies and like that – this is the one. It's interesting because it's a dance movie. We said it's going to be wall-to-wall dancing. I was surprised that – you have to wait about 25 minutes until a dance number happens. And in the first 20 minutes, I'm like, what? what is going on here? This movie is, it's like this weird, broad comedy. And I think I got really brought in by how delightful it was. Like, I was like, this is just bizarro. Like, Fred Astaire is this dancer in a show that seems to be pretty successful, I think. And he's going to get married. And... And his, like, other dancers in the show don't want him to get married for reasons unknown, really. And then they send him on this, like, mission to get a different cuff for a pant. And there are these, like, great, like, side characters in it that are making me laugh. Like, this, the tailor. I was like, I want, I want to do this as my audition scene. <laughs> I have never seen cuffs on pants like these. What's the matter? Can't you make them? I can make anything. But I would rather not be wrong than right. Well, I'm paying for cuffs, and I want cuffs. No, no. Ten times, twenty times no. Can't you understand? Look, here, let me show you. Do you see any cuffs there? Not one cuff. 
I don't know. That scene <laughs> strikes me as being very funny. I think people are really pushing. It is a comedy movie. It is a comedy movie from the beginning. I mean, let's get into how it starts. The movie opens with Fred Astaire seemingly a successful dancer, right? He is the star of this show. He comes down, and my impression of him was, wow, here's a successful guy. And he's dressed fancy because he's been performing. So he's in this, like, classy-ass suit that he's basically just going to wear at his wedding. Right, which, by the way, I want to get into this whole idea. Like, this is a... Uh, a conceit that is used in all these movies that makes no sense to me. Like, oh, gotta get to my wedding now. It's like, who is like booking things in the morning before their wedding? Like, it, like, I've never been at a wedding where someone's not shown up. I've never been involved with a friend who's like, I'm running late. Like, it's just like a writerly conceit that I think is so insane. So he's like, got off stage, like, going to my wedding, new information. And his friends, for no reason, they're not like, we hate your fiance. They, they just want him to not get married, right? They just want him to not get married. They're also really bad friends. Is he staying with his pop? No, he's made up his mind to get married. How do you like that? Letting his marriage interfere with our career. His friends terrible are terrible friends. Beyond even the don't, we don't want you to get married to this girl thing. They're like, they rob him of all his money at the end. Like, you're going to New York and we're taking all of your money. Well, they lost a bet. He lost a bet. Yeah, but like, that's a real dick move, though. <laughs> I mean, this is, we're just trying to explain the first 10 minutes of this movie. And, and like, <laughs> Ginger the, Rogers hasn't shown up yet. No, she's not, yeah. She doesn't come in until about minute 20. And so, like, even the premise of him not getting married was they open up a magazine, a men's magazine. They see a man with a nice pair of pants on. And then they draw a special cuff on the pant. And like, hey, you got last year's pants. You need to get this year's pants. And Fred Astaire's like, oh, yeah. I need to get this new cuff on my pant before I can get married. I'm like, dude, who cares? You're not a celebrity. You can get married with your normal cuffs. And then he like, then there's a whole sequence with this tailor, which we played, where he's going to get a cuff for a pant, and then he misses his wedding, and then he goes to the house, and he's like, hey, I'm here. And like, well, no, you can't be here. You're not successful enough. You need to raise $25,000 to marry my daughter. New information. And he's like, all right, well, I guess I got to go to New York to make $25,000. And then the guys take his money. They jump on a fucking freight train, like literally a freight train. They jump on it like hobos. He Jack Reacher's it. He shows up in New York <laughs> with nothing but a toothbrush. He literally has only a toothbrush. And his lucky coin. And his lucky coin. This is why I think I love this movie. It's like, whoa. What is happening here? Wait, I love that you were focused on that because I was like, I got really into the dramatics of it. I was like, why is he engaged to this woman when they don't seem to like each other very much? There's no charisma between them. She seems very boring. This movie is garbage. I got very upset right away in that marriage scene because I thought they were so dull. And also I couldn't figure out the logistics of it. They look middle class. But then when he says he made $200 that day, the dad is so impressed by $200. Basically, this movie is just stringing along plot points for them. It's like, well, now you got to raise $25,000. Like, all right, well, we'll dance. Hey, you raised that much money. All right, well, dance again. Like it was, Everything was just like, complete this obstacle. You did it. It's like, oh, actually, that wasn't the obstacle. Here's the obstacle. Then they complete it again. Like, and basically, and so dancing is just, they do a dance, they get it, and then someone's like, nah, now you got to do this. It's video game dancing. Yeah. You got to level up. <laughs> but so, Astaire yes. goes to New York to make money. He's got his best buddy Pops right. with him. What's going on with Pops? Pops is like, on the spectrum, and I mean that in a way that I'm like, sometimes he's amazingly agile and smart. And other times I'm like, is he drunk or is he just like been hitting the head with a blunt instrument? I don't know. And he, 
Yeah, I thought he was wasted in Pops' first scene. Like, the movie yeah. opens on Pops, where he's, yeah. like, doing a card trick, and some dude just walks away from his card trick. I mean, I love the Magic Castle. I don't know why oh, I love would it walk too. away from a Magic trick. Of course not. I mean, I, yeah, Pops is, like, crazy. He's a mess. He's really broke, but then somehow he's super rich, like, halfway through the yeah. movie. He's got this wad of cash. He's buying diamonds. I love this guy uh, who played Pops, um, who actually was from my hometown. I did really? a little research. Yeah. Victor Moore and you are from the same hometown. Yes, I was very excited about that. And I think he, w- I thought he was really, really funny, but uh, would you, did you like him or no? I loved Pops, and I loved Pops's girlfriend, that they meet at the same time that they meet Ginger oh, yeah. Rogers when they go to New York. Like, to he- get back Fred Astaire's lucky quarter, which is another thing that's like, the the whole movie is predicated on new information being doled out at the last possible second. Like, oh, and that's my lucky quarter because you're really inveterate gambler. Oh, he's a gambler? Okay, I guess, <laughs> I guess he's a gambler. I didn't know he was a gambler. Fredster is a very unconvincing gambler. Oh. I mean, there's gambling all over this movie, and it's always like, oh, no, Fred's going to start gambling. And it's like they're just offering him a glass of water. Sure. Yeah. I'll do it. That's fine. He doesn't oh, seem you. to be taken over by the gambling spirit in any way. I mean, he like, doesn't seem risky. <laughs> not at all. Well, so they show up in New York, and he runs after Ginger Rogers to get his lucky quarterback. Yes. Because, like, he's traded it for her so that his buddy can buy a pack of cigarettes. Somehow they win a bunch of money when the cigarette machine comes out. <laughs> he chases her to the cops and tries to get her quarterback, and the cops get involved. And this suddenly becomes a scene about how a guy in a tuxedo can get away with anything. I think that's, like, the subplot of this movie. Like, this outfit that he's wearing without the cuffs is, like, this superpower. It makes the cops immediately turn on his side and, yes. like, think that Ginger Rogers is a thief. And then he shows up at Ginger Rogers' workplace, and it makes her boss immediately be like, whatever you want, she will teach you to dance. Of course, fancy rich sir, the world yeah. is your oyster. And he gets people fired, like, accidentally. I mean, you wear the right pair of pants. They're not lying at the beginning. I you guess you're right. You want. Maybe this is the what was going on in the 30s. Different pants really made the man. Yeah, well, then, and now we're getting up to like the first dance number, right? So the dancing in this movie is interesting because it's a lot of hopping. I mean, I guess it's tap, but it's also like tap and like dancing like as a two as a twosome, like tap twosome dancing. It's not like ha ha ha, you do this, ha ha, I do that. It's more like they're. In coordination, it's like I, I like the idea that when you go dancing, you just also laugh. <laughs> I was trying to figure out the best way to like vocalize my visualization of it. Um, Fred Astaire doesn't really reveal to Ginger Rogers that he is a dancer, and when he accidentally gets her fired, he tries to get her job back by saying to her boss, "Like, actually, I think I got it now." And then they they in the movie improvise this dance. And this is a question I want to ask our expert when she gets here. Is that even something that is possible? Like, I mean, like, and I'm not trying to poke holes in this movie because I understand what we're doing here. It's a dance movie. I get it. But I just love the conceit that they improvise like a, like a perfect dance. And it's not, again, not like a, I do this, you do that. It's like a choreographed dance that they have Figured out perfectly together. Yeah, they're that's, swinging each other over railings. It's amazing. That's their, I guess that's their meet cute. I mean, if I was Ginger's, my meet cute would not be this dude accusing me of thievery. <laughs> but you know, they have these weights sewn into the bottom of her dresses so that when they whirl her around, oh, that's really? how it swirls so gracefully. That's the secret. I'm like fascinated by their relationship. I did a little bit of research on it and I wanted to ask you about it too because, you know, what was it like off screen? I'm, I, I'm fascinated because they're very, not only are they, romantically intertwined in 10 films, which is something so kind of rare in this, you know, now in our day and age. But they're also 
tied together is dancers. And I feel like that's something that is so intimate, you know, especially with how many times we're doing things, how many times we're rehearsing things. And, you know, I did a little bit of research and just saw that there was a little animosity that Ginger Rogers has to Fred Astaire. And, and then also this, did they ever have anything? Because they never, they only kissed once on screen uh, because Fred Astaire's wife was extremely jealous. So every oh. time they kiss in a film, and you'll notice it in this one too, the door like opens, uh, obscures them, and the kiss happens behind the door. So you don't see their lips lock. You just see like lipstick on his face when the door is opened again to reveal. And even at the end, when they kiss in the big final moment, their heads are obscuring. You never see lips touch. And it was because Fred Astaire's wife was extremely jealous of their relationship. I didn't know it was the wife. I thought it was a production code thing. I mean, Ginger Rogers had a right to be mad at him. She always made less money than he did. She made less money than even like the comedians did. Like Ginger Rogers did not make money. And he was going around behind her back. I don't know if it was behind her back, but he would say stuff to people like, Ginger never danced with a partner before me. She faked it a lot. She faked it a lot. How do you fake fake dancing? Right? You can't fake that. And later on, he'd come around to be like, no, Ginger was the best partner I ever had. But to accuse Wow, thanks for coming around after a 10 move. (laughs) You know, it's like, well, yeah, you can't fake it. You can't. And there was something about, like, I mean, she is so talented on so many levels because she's playing comedy. She's playing drama. She is dancing. Like, she really is the full package. Like, you know, and it's like, she was doing it all. I was really impressed by her. Yeah, I mean, she shows up in Hollywood as this chorus girl. She's in a couple of my favorite movies that we'll probably talk about too, like Busby Berkeley, Gold Diggers of 1933, not in the AFI Top 100 list. You know, she goes on a date apparently with uh, Fred Astaire in the 20s and they have like one kiss and they're like, we're buddies now. It's fine, it's fine, it's fine. But she... Was the real, real deal. And after these movies, she quits eventually because she's tired of making a lot less money than Fred Astaire. And then she wins an Oscar for actually acting. Like she oh, is. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Actress wow. for, uh, for Kitty Foyle for Best Actress. I mean, she could do everything. And honestly, the theory is that part of why she was his best dance partner, because he went on to dance with a bunch of people when right. she left him, was because she looked at him as though he was the greatest dancer on earth. And she was smiling and she was confident. Like in that first number you're talking about, yeah. she looks so pleased. She looks like a cat that just ate a bunch of cream, you know, that yeah. phrase. She's so happy with what they're doing that I think that's what makes their dance numbers look so magical. She brings this emotion to it. Well, I mean, also I think, you know, I've, I'm a big fan of all the step-up movies. Step Up 3D, if you can see it in 3D, go see Holy it. Holy shit, are you serious? That's one of my favorite oh. Movies in 3D. I saw that in 3D at the theater and, like, lost my mind. I was like, this is the future, people. More of this. It is. It, it, I love the stuff. They oh. have a dance uh, workout DVD. You can learn a couple of Oh, really? Of I've tried it. Oh, I would it's like to. Hard. I would I imagine. Um, <laughs> step up. There's something very effortful in what they're doing. It feels like we're dancing. Like, they're putting their body into it. They're really, like, doing it. And there's something so effortless with this dancing to a certain degree. It seems so flowy and even though even though it's tappy and stuff there's something really wonderful about it. like it, it it feels unimpressive until you realize how impressive it is like whoa because it seems so simple you have to kind of be shown the like going up and down that staircase when you think about that like oh that's impossible but when they do it it seems so like oh yeah of course you could just go up and down a staircase no big deal yeah it's just more terrain it's what yeah. we do it's what we, they look like goats like happy graceful goats when you watch goats on the cliff and yeah. they're like standing on things that don't even they're standing on the width of a sharpie well, i think there's like a musical cue even in this movie that 
really captures what you're talking about. And it's when they do a waltz tap dance, uh-huh. which is something I never even considered yes. you could do. Let's play this. And I want people to listen for the sound of tapping underneath the sound of graceful music. Okay. Because it's going against even the sound of the music itself. It's this whole effort that you hear happening underneath the melody. Yeah, I think there's and there are all these like beautifully subtle, you know, things that are happening in this film. From a directing standpoint, I feel like this movie is directed in a very simple manner in a way. I feel like it just it allows you to really just watch and take them in. I think that's what I love and don't love about it. This is what I've been wrestling with okay. because I've been thinking a lot about swing time in regards to action movies and how my favorite type of action movies when the camera is just totally still and you watch a dude do something amazing. Right. And here, that's what Fred Astaire wanted to do. He was like, put the camera still and you're just going to watch this. And all of these dance numbers feel like they're single take. Right. And they are for, for the most part. You're just watching them do a thing. And I want to respect that, but at the, and, I, and I should respect that. But my favorite musical director at the time, Busby Berkeley, was doing crazy stuff with musicals and putting the camera everywhere and cutting okay. and making all these abstractions. And this is Fred Astaire saying, we don't need to do that here. But I couldn't help thinking the movie got really static. Like, because the director, even George Stevens, he's not even known as a musical guy. I mean, this is the guy who did Shane and Diary of Anne Frank in A Place in the Sun. He's not a musical guy. I wonder if that is why Fred Astaire picked this guy. Like, no, 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 I'm the star. My dancing, or the dancing in the film is what's happening. It's not your camera work. You know, you do you, get the drama, get the comedy. But, because that seems like a very pointed choice, you know, to be like, just let us do our thing. I feel like there's not that much drama here still. No, it's it's kind of crazy, like, because there's all these moments for drama that don't come to anything. It's a love triangle film, and when the girl shows up, he doesn't feel torn. Nobody feels torn. Nobody seems to care except Ginger Rogers. Oh, I, I mean, I wrote at the end, it's like the the whole resolution of this film where inexplicably Ginger Rogers like goes back to this band leader she doesn't even like. And is like, yeah, okay, we'll get married. No stakes there. And then uh, and then Fred Astaire's ex, you know, ex-fiance is like, I actually don't like you anymore. He's like, great. And then they get together. Everyone laughs for the last five minutes of the movie. Like, there's some big joke. I'm like, what? What's so funny? Like, they're just laughing because there is no drama in the end of this movie. This movie is set pieces. I mean, and I think set pieces with some really funny business in between. And I think because the plot uh, felt so light, I just think I sat back and was like, well, I just let it kind of envelop me. I also will say the reason why I really liked it, too, is because of all the music. I think the music in this, you know, it's all the um, Jerome Kern, right? So it's you know, pick yourself up the way you look tonight, the, you know, never going to dance. Like, these are iconic songs. And yeah, I think that a that means— fine made, romance a is— fine romance, I yeah. play that song all the time because it was on the Priscilla Queen of the Desert soundtrack. Amazing. I love that song. <laughs> and I just feel like the—like, that elevates it, too, because it's like, oh, wow, just, like, hearing these songs that are— these st- staple standards of our time. And like that, this is the first time that they were in a film, you know? Yeah, that's so striking because the idea of hearing a standard and realizing it wasn't always a standard. Right. This is the first time people are hearing this. This movie introduced these songs to the world. A fine romance with no clinches. A fine romance with no pinches. 
You never give the orchids, I send a glance. No, you like cactus plants. This is a fine romance. All right, so we talked a lot about this movie, but I think one of the most striking things, and one of the things that I feel like we have to talk about and give it a proper weight is this scene where Fred Astaire is in blackface. Uh, yeah, I did not know this was in the movie when we were sitting down to watch it. It came as a surprise. Oh, no, a blackface surprise? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the worst one. We figured the best people to help us unpack this are the hosts of Yo! Is This Racist, Andrew T. and Tawny Newsom, to come and discuss this Mr. Bojangles dancer. Welcome, both of you. Thanks. What's up? I I'm- just really fast had to... Google surprise blackface to have a couple <laughs> of ammunition. Is well, that in the lexicon already? I thought I came up with it. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a movie with blackface in it. Like no? We, I don't think so. I don't know. If Isn't like, it in White Christmas? And I, like, I would I've never seen that. So I Googled a little bit about this, and I read a lot of white people saying <laughs> that this is not problematic. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. So and, and I, I kept on, like, I, I would look at the authors, like, oh, there's another white person just saying, like, not mm-hmm. a big deal. Yeah. But I want to get your take on it, because this dance number, I will say, is incredibly mm-hmm. impressive, right? Yeah. So take away the blackface element of it. The dance number is impressive. Yeah, when the reviews came out of, of this movie, everybody loved it. Everybody pointed to this number in specific. And, like, this is a newspaper in Iowa, wrote... Bojangles of Harlem brings you a pleasant surprise. Fred Astaire in blackface, his solo specificiality in which he is supported by a bevy of delectable sepia girls. (laughs) That's what a euphemism. Mm. So good. Yeah, I mean, it definitely was. uh, I've read a lot of those takes too, Paul, that are like, as far as blackface goes, this is not the bad blackface. Like examples of like, because he didn't do the lips and he didn't do the like, you know, the sayings and like it wasn't a whole like shuck and jive. But he. He was using it as a way to dance in a different style. And it's not that he was actually honoring Bill Robinson because Bill Robinson didn't dance like that. Bill Robinson wasn't loose and down and kind of schlubby or wearing a polka dot tie ever. Bill Robinson was very, like, tailored and pulled together. That's the person who originated Mr. Bojangles, in case you don't know. Um, But so Fred Astaire used it as a way to dance in a way that was stereotypically Negro. This is a place where, like, like, it comes up even today, which is, like, intention versus effect, right? Like, so many, like, nice white people are like, oh, I didn't mean it. Or, like, even people who defend, like, say, a Donald Trump. It's like, he doesn't have racism in his heart. And there's, it's fair, I think, to question who cares what's in your heart. Right. It's also fair to say, do we grade the past on a curve? Mm. And where does this sit on that curve as far as blackface goes? Like, Maybe there's no malice and it's just ignorance. I don't know. But I still come back to, like, I'm a huge fan of uh, old classic movies and I'm a tap dancer, so I, I love Fred Astaire. I love Gene Kelly. As far as I can tell, there's no examples of Gene Kelly dancing in blackface. Right. And they were doing the same shit at the same time. And it's so ingrained into tap culture that you can kind of be like, oh, of course, everybody's had a you know blackface tap number. Not Gene Kelly, man. You know, by the way, and I know he didn't do it with, like, the typical blackface, like, look— but when you first see the image, it's like giant lips, like on like a hat, yeah. like and then the then the hat breaks open. They're giant long legs. I mean, it's not super tame. No, I mean, no. it, it's, and it's like yeah. this is the first time the movie's tried to do anything visually ambitious, and it's that. Yeah, and it's a little. Sh- I mean, it was shocking to see, and I know I, I get like I feel like people are 
very like quick to be like, whoa, you can't be mad at the past. You can't get mad at the past and we got to move forward. It's like, but when you're putting something like this in an AFI top 100 or an EW, you know, top movies or musicals, then you're saying to a culture of people, this is what you should see. This is what's good. Mm -hmm. And then they're watching that. And that's, I think, the issue, right? That's yeah. to, to me, it's like, well, you're continuing to promote it yeah. and, and without context, it's a, it's a problematic thing. Ultimately, I, I, this sort of almost gets to the concept of canons at all. Right. Like, especially in film where the body of work is so much is, you know, in, in the past and from these times and, and, you know, have, there are films of value that are significant in film history that have repellent morals like sort of throughout you know, I'm a very anti-canon person in that, like, I don't know. That, yeah. That's what I'm saying, yeah. right? Yeah. So so that's what, but, like, in the sense of, like, you have to give so much compromise. And part of me, I'm just like, eh, I don't want to do that compromise some of the time. Well, well it's interesting because, like, Birth of a Nation, for example, is not on the AFI Top 100, which really, I was glad mm-hmm. to see that in surprise. It feels like the conversation we were having around that has made them take it off the list. Mm-hmm. Is there a line between like the blackface and birth of a nation being done by white actors to specifically like malign people and paint them as horrible caricatures? And in Fred Astaire thinking that he's paying tribute to a friend, it's all it's all very confusing. And yeah, messy. there's definitely shades of blackface for sure. <laughs> it's like <laughs> some blackface is a little more like brown, you know. It's not as not as bad, but still harmful. Can we but retitle it, a podcast Fifty Shades of Blackface? Oh man, <laughs> we, we still can't. Let's think okay. about it. Okay, cool. edit this out. Edit this out. Um, yeah, no, I think that it's uh, it's exactly what you guys are saying is that it's it's hard to watch now or to say to young people now, like, yep, this is a classic film. The same way that it's hard for teachers nowadays to teach, you know, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn and whatnot without having these conversations. So uh, thank you guys for having the conversation yeah, because the I kind of think that's the only way you could do it is to be like, we're still honoring this great film. We got to talk about this problem yeah. that's going on. Well, because <laughs> here's one thing I will say, like one of the defining images that I take away from this movie him dancing with three versions of himself. Like visually that is so impressive, so like stunningly cool. And then when you're looking at it, like, well, but he's also in black. Like it's, it's a Mm -hmm. weird, it's, you can, I, I feel like you can't, enjoy it or show it without some sort of context. So then I'm looking at that three shadow scene and I'm like, is this Fred trying to say like, we've allotted these white tap dancers who've built this tradition off of the works of black people. Cause right. he's got these three black shadows behind him. So I'm like looking for all the symbolism oh, wow. in it. I don't know if that's there, <laughs> but like, a part of my heart wants it to be. I mean, look, you can frame it in those ways and kind of make them like the the Macklemores of their time. <laughs> <laughs> but at, like, like trying to do the right thing. Even let's let's right. give fully giving the benefit of the doubt. Trying to do the right thing. This is as progressive as I think I can get. But also being a white person who's disproportionately rewarded for you know these things and for borrowing from black culture in that way. It's a little like. Fair to give them the benefit of the doubt, but also fair for any, you know, individual person of color or, you know, especially a black person in this case watching this to be like, no, fuck that guy. Well, yeah. But, you know, there's something interesting because I think going on what you were saying, Tani, like the idea that I think in his mind he was like, I'm being very subversive now. But it's the misgu- it's misguided in like even in that it's sort of like yeah. 
they become problematic yeah. in trying to be like, oh, yeah. I'm so not problematic that now they are becoming problem. You know, I, oh I, yeah, like we're about to see the wave of like pink face backlash for right. sure from all these '90s movies that are like, look at this man who's in a dress who's kissing another man. You know, yeah. like things that we thought were harmless. I still get surprised by comedies from the '90s, and I'm like, oh no, that mm-hmm. person's doing this terrible thing. So, so sort of walking back what I was saying about canon stuff is the the other uh, thing to kind of maybe consider as you guys are proceeding with the podcast is people of color are a lot more used to being able to enjoy problematic things or things because they're just like, look, this is the culture. Something is messed up about it, but I can still enjoy this movie or like, you know, Avengers or rap music or whatever, even and still recognize that there are things that are not perfect about them. Whereas the argument at least is that white people are more used to being able to see things as perfect. I think this might have been in, in reference to the Apu thing, which is on The Simpsons, which right. is like, it's fine to like The Simpsons and still think this one thing is maybe not great. You know, and, and I think people of color are much more used to internalizing stuff like that. So I don't know, maybe maybe a guide point going forward too, which is yeah. just like, hey, this thing is like, can be fucked up in this way, but still be good or great even. And on that note, I'll say, Tani, I have some bad news for you oh, about no. Gene Kelly. What? No, we didn't. No. What, what movie? Uh, not in movies, only on stage. But uh, yeah, there's a, a Wikipedia page of all performers who have done blackface. Photos or it didn't happen. I've got to see it. No. Oh, man. Well, thank you guys so much for talking to us about this. Definitely check out your amazing podcast, Yo, Is This Racist? And it drops what? Every what day? Wednesdays. Ooh, Wednesdays. So check it out uh, wherever podcasts. Podcasts are heard. Thank you both. Thanks Thanks. for having us. Well, so, Paul, we can't talk about a dance movie without having a dance expert in here. We have an Emmy award-winning dance expert in here, Kat Burns, the absolute best. She's done Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She's done everything, and she's here to talk to us about the dancing in swing time. Sweetness. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, my gosh. It's such a pleasure to talk to you because I have a lot of questions about the dance in this. We were just talking a second ago about the idea that in a movie like Step Up, the dancing is feels to me very effortful. Like you see, like you see them, mm. you know, it's, it's a lot of energy in the body. And here it seems so smooth, like going up and down the stairs. How complicated is something like that? Oh, that's insane. I mean that um, to begin with, it was so like emotionally driven, like all of the choreography was like a, a hesitant sway that led into this grand swooping thing up the stairs. And so she's doing step step, like in a, a turn up the stairs with a long full length dress and heels. And so even just like walking at like, I, when you don't even walk up and down stairs, you normally look at your feet to yeah. make sure you don't fall. Yeah. So not only was she like stepping and turning, but she wasn't even looking down. Yeah. So it's extremely difficult. But the, the, the glory of them is that it, it had that feeling of being swept away that I feel like every woman or man wants is like just to be swept off your feet and you're effortlessly gliding through clouds because your mood's so elevated by this person or by this moment um, versus like, watch out. Yeah, I'm going to show you. Look well, at this cool yeah, thing. Well, yeah. here's the word that we use in the step-up movies. We're using the word battle. Right, right. This yeah. Is, this is not a battle, but there's an emotional battle. Like you talk about Ginger Rogers at the beginning of that number, how she's fighting dancing with him almost. She's like stiff. Her face is collapsed. She doesn't want to be there. Have you seen this movie before? And how familiar are you with this pairing? Um, well, I'm very familiar. I mean, I... I you know, I I grew up kind of watching old movie musicals. Like okay. I was that kid that watched Shirley Temple, like yeah. um, at like eight. 
you know, and went to Blockbuster and rented old movie musicals because um, they were like transformative. Yeah, so we studied Fred and, uh, Fred and Ginger for uh, the first season of Crazy X. We did a spoof of it called Settle for Me. Mm-hmm. And um, so I actually had seen one of the YouTube clips of, which is great now that you can reference all these classics yeah. on YouTube. And um, But I had never seen it all together. Are you impressed by this dancing? Is this dancing still impressive to you? Yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting about it, because when I was rewatching it to um, come here, I was like, I was trying to think of how to describe it. And so there is like a waltz in swing time, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, they're not doing a traditional hold. They're not doing like traditional ballroom dancing because it's tap dancing with the traditional ballroom hold. But they, they dance equally. Like, it's not like she's being led by him. Like they're partners and then they dance side by side. And it's really impressive. Um, a lot of people don't know, too, that Hermes Pan was the one that worked with Fred Astaire's whole entire career, pretty oh, much. Um, Hermes Pan, is the, that's the best name ever to I be named know. after yes. two Greek gods. I mean, right? <laughs> what, a, what a thing to live up to. Um, mine's a cat that goes in flames, I guess. I'm an Amy. That gets you nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Ginger Rogers was dancing in heels, and apparently the, that number was like 76 times or something until they were happy with it, and her feet were literally bleeding in her high heels. Wow. And like, she's smiling. No wonder she won an Oscar. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I think what I think what's really impressive about these numbers is the musicality. Like, the musicality still stands up. Like, I personally don't think the group number at the end uh, the one that actually won the Oscar was as impressive musically, but what when they all started dancing with him like ten in a row, like when he yeah. was dancing with all the women at once. Yeah, it was and the way that I counted, trans- I was like, oh, how 20. is he? Yeah, he's partnering twenty women who are all oh just lined up like a centipede. Of course, every every woman's dream to be one of twenty. <laughs> it's like The Bachelor. Uh, <laughs> um, and so. Everything's so impressive, like the taps seem so loud, everything, the music, everything is kind of perfectly uh, choreographed. I'm, I'm kind of blown away by that. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they they actually don't wear their tap shoes while performing. They're just regular shoes. Oh, and then really? they record their taps after. Is and that cheating? Yeah, could they be making up extra taps? I mean, kind of. And apparently Hermes Pan did the taps of Ginger. Oh, really? Not that she probably couldn't, but she's probably busy. You oh, know. no. So is this what it means when, when Fred Astaire said that Ginger was faking it? Oh, well, and if you notice, her footwork as an, isn't as articulated as his is. Okay. Um, well, Fred Astaire seemed to be just a percussion instrument himself. I mean, there's even a number in one of his older movies where he's standing in the middle of a drum set mm-hmm. and he's tapping and then kicking the drums and then tapping some more and just turning the entire thing into mm. like he's animal, but he's doing it with his feet. Oh, wow. That's so funny. <laughs> Does he have like long hair and moves his head? Well, <laughs> okay, I just want to ask this too. Like as somebody who studied the classical musicals, these, these great black and white musicals, is this one, Swing Time, the one that you'd expect to see in the AFI Top 100? Because there's really not that many. There's Swing Time and Yankee Doodle Dandy with Jimmy Cagney, underrated amazing dancer. Can't wait to yeah. get to that movie. But that's about it. None of the Busby Berkeley ones? None of the Busby Berkeley ones, which breaks my heart. Wow. I, it was great. I, I definitely think that there could be others. And it's surprising that this is the one. I mean, maybe it's because of the Oscar and that was such a random occurrence. Especially since it only lasted three years, that whole nomination and the nominating of a choreographer of yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, Kat. So let me just ask you a question. What is one critique you might have for this film? Oh well, I thought it was interesting that uh, the Mr. Bojangles number. What was that one again? Yeah, Mr. Bojangles. Mr. Bojangles. Oh my god, I'm so smart. Cool. <laughs> um, Mr. Bojangles number. When he was tap dancing, I was like kind of bummed out that the the clapping sound sounded exactly like his tap sounds. Oh, interesting. Like the Foley was like, we'll just use tap sounds for the hands. <laughs> I don't know if y'all noticed. I didn't notice no. that. But like, obviously like a clap sounds very different yeah. than a tap. 
It's a wow. metal thing on a floor. Um, and the and the and the like the the female. Well, the, women back then danced a little differently. Like anyways, like they they never really stood up straight. Like their backs were a little bit of a C. They never really finished moves. Yeah, they're shuffling a lot. Yeah, and their arms are kind of sloppy. But like, and what I thought was interesting too is how the women, in my opinion, when they all the all the women came out, the twenty of them, like they weren't objectified. Like it wasn't overly sexual, and they weren't overly feminine either. But I love picturing being in the theater in nineteen thirty six and suddenly seeing that shadow dance at the end of that number, and oh, just yeah. how simple it is and how it takes over the entire screen like the bluntness of that felt so modern mm-hmm. totally apparently that took like three days to film or something yeah and they had to shoot it on like he shot each individual dance and then they had to project it, it that to me visually is one of the most stunning things in this film you mm-hmm. know like that and and looking at it and going well how are they doing it because at first i thought it was just a shadow projection like you know like they had three lights on him and it was a shooting back and then when you start to see like I saw it in the beginning it just felt like they were all in tandem and then they all started doing it differently yeah and mm-hmm. the, yeah there's that moment you even hear it in the music you hear this moment in that song number where the shadows go from following him to him following them and the music does this tiny shift I love that yeah And here's where they jump in and just start dancing without him, and then the whole number changes. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so great. Oh, it's so great. It's really, like, I mean, it's beautifully shot and problematic. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kat, thank you so much for coming in yeah. and talking to us about about this, about the dance, about Astaire, about everything. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having really me. great. Thank you so much. All right, so as always, we like to put the film that we're talking about in context. The movie came out uh, in 1936, right uh, after kids went back to school, I imagine, September 4th. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the president. Uh, it was in his second term. The helicopter was invented. Sunscreen was invented. Um, the book Gone with the Wind was published on June 30th. And uh, Billboard magazine published their first ever pop music chart. And also to put this in context, yeah. musicals had only existed for eight years. The jazz singer comes wow. out and now we had singing and dancing. I mean, eight years, that's like less than we've had Avengers movies. That is actually even more impressive to me now. <laughs> this makes this movie very impressive. Like the one thing I love about this movie is there's a lot of sayings that I didn't quite understand, but they felt like really uh, sassy sayings. And I wanted to play one that I'm like, what does this even mean? So in this scene, uh, Pops and his de facto girlfriend are entering into the club. They mistakenly get separated. Uh, his uh, girlfriend is talking to Pops, realizes that Pops is not there, and then this kind of transpires. Well, the old slitch. Oh, now listen, girly. Don't worry about me. You know, I often talk to myself. You see, I'm my own grandmother, and I have to keep the old girl interested. <laughs> what does that mean? I'm my own grandmother and I have to keep the old girl interested? I, I like She said it in a way, I'm like, yeah, ha-ha. But what does that mean? I don't know, but that actress, Helen Broderick, playing Mabel, is so amazing. Like, everything she says, I just buy completely. I want to see the up. Mabel Pops movie. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> I like that better than Fred and Ginger because their relationship makes sense. They meet, they like each other, they dig each other, they have he a bunch of He eats her sandwich and they get into it. Yeah, it's a nice metaphor. Oh, he ate her sandwich? I get it. But, like, with Fred and, and Ginger, he's like, 
I'm going to woo you over. I'm going to literally strike outside your apartment until you date me. And then I'm going to get awkward when you want to kiss me because I have a fiance. Like, oh, I forgot about that. Yeah, it's it's a bizarre. I mean, again, if we're trying to pull apart the plots of this movie, it makes no sense because aren't they – Aren't they also in a hotel? Like, was she also, are they both staying in the same apartment? I don't even understand. You know what the simplest version of this plot is? Yeah. Because Ginger Rogers, her name here is Penelope Penny Carroll. Mm-hmm. The simplest version of this plot is a broke man trying to get his penny. Oh, wow. Aww. I love that. I love that. <laughs> but if we're talking about the amazing Mabel, can I play my favorite Mabel part? Yeah, please. Okay, so my favorite Mabel part takes mm-hmm. place when Ginger's deciding she's going to date that annoying rich guy again. Yes. And they're canoodling backstage when Mabel walks in and says something fucking ballsy. Let's see. Oh, I, I was just asking Penny how, how can I keep my mind on the music if she dresses like that? You'll just have to get used to it. Hell yes. <laughs> Hell yes, Mabel. But by the way, for this being a postcode movie, I feel like you can see Ginger Rogers' nipples a lot. Wow, that's interesting. I did not notice that at all. Yeah, this scene. Sorry, I guess I'm a creep. But like no. the scene where she kisses Fred a yeah. step behind the door... Very modest, and yet the entire time she's cold. That's interesting. I, I really want to get into that idea of the postcode too, because I understand what it is, but I didn't. I don't know if I could really point that transition out as much. Uh, when did it change? Yeah, the coat has kind of a long story. I'll try to tell it really, really yeah. fast because it, it's going to be coming up a lot. Okay. Uh, so you remember Fatty Arbuckle, the yes. rape trial, right mm-hmm. around the time, and a director was also murdered, William Desmond Taylor. And so Hollywood was like, oh, my God, we have to protect our reputation. This is like 1920, 21. Got it. They invite this guy, William Hayes, to come in and stamp everything they do, add this air of legitimacy. And William Hayes does. He's like the toast of the town for a really long time. He's incredibly powerful. And there's this loose code of what you shouldn't do. But then he really mixes it up in around like 1934, 1935. He decides to actually enforce it. Before it was this idea of them making Hollywood look better. Got it. But this is when they start saying, we won't even show your movie if you're going to like have a lot of like illicit love, if you're going to have a lot of wow. sex, if you are going to make fun of the clergy. That was one of the rules. Wow. And so this is right when it happens, when it gets really strict. And you can tell because the Busby Berkeley stuff and the musicals right before this mm-hmm. – are kind of sexy. Like, there's some sex, there's some violence, and then suddenly they really shut it down right here. It's interesting because the problems that you described were happening off camera in the social life of Hollywood, not on screen, but yet they were like, we need to clean up our act on screen, not off screen. It's a very bizarre like fixed to a problem that wasn't really even having having a problem. Yeah, and I'm sure this will come up later, but like Will Hayes, not even a cool dude. Like you have you heard of the Teapot Dome scandal? Yes, of course. He was one of the guys of the Teapot Dome scandal. They're like, Whoa. let's get this government crook here and then make him our moral majority leader. I mean, this is what happens. Wow. The Hollywood system is amazing. I went so deep on you must remember this and oh, just hi, amazing. Oh, she's amazing. And that uh and it's I love those stories of basically just corrupting people, like just wrecking people, like treating people like tools and animals. <laughs> like it, it, I'm always fascinated by that. Yeah, like when even when Fred Astaire shows up in Hollywood and he does his first screen test, yeah. this is the feedback he got. Can't act, slightly bald, also dances. <laughs> <I love it. laughs> and it was David Oselznick who said, no, 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 no. I am uncertain about this man. But I feel in spite of his enormous ears and bad chin line, that his Ooh. charm is so tremendous that it comes through even on this wretched test. 
Wow. <laughs> wow. And by the way, I will say the one thing that I loved about Fred Astaire was watching him move. Like watching him move without the dancing is just kind of a beautiful feat. Like he walks around the room as if he's dancing. He's not even in dance scenes. And I just feel like his body has this limberness to it that is unlike anything that I've ever quite seen. So I pulled a lot of clips from this movie that I almost feel like are too cruel to play, so I might not do it. <laughs> Wait, but, come on, play one. Okay, what I pulled is a lot of clips where absolutely nothing happens, and I don't understand why this movie exists. <laughs> because, okay, so before even, yeah. let's do the one before the A Fine Romance number. Okay. When the guys show up at the snowy cabin to have a heart-to-heart. Oh, yes. And it is the most insane waste of a minute on screen that I think I have ever seen. Because before this clip even starts, it's 30 seconds of watching the car pull up in a static shot. But so you're going to hear this car pulling up, parking, the slowness of anybody getting out of the car. It is insane. (laughs) All right. Well, if this is the new Amsterdam, I'd hate to see the old one. Uh-huh, there's the car. It's just sitting there. They're just sitting in a car. Oh, good. Fred Astaire's getting out of the car. Nobody else is getting out of the car. What is going on? We're just watching him stretch. They clearly had a soundstage that was decorated for another movie. And like, <laughs> we can pull a car into it. Do it in a wide. Oh, good. One more person's out of the car. They're getting out of the car. They're You're standing right. in front of the car. There's what no is going on? And now they're just standing. They basically drive out to the country to have a scene on a bench, and that's it. <laughs> I mean, like, I thought this was going to be like a whole second act of the movie where they fall in love a little bit more. So we often, you know, this movie clearly is in the top 100 films of all time. But did everyone love this movie, Amy? I, I think it was very hard to find people who did not love this movie, but you did. It was really hard to find people who did not love this movie. The closest I could find to an out-and-out pan was this thing— from the New York Times. They wrote, That was no riot outside the music hall yesterday. It was merely the populace storming the Rockefeller Cinema Citadel for a glimpse of the screen's nimblest song and dance team, Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire, and their latest festival, Swing Time. Maybe they felt better about it than we did. We left the theater feeling definitely let down. The picture is good, of course. It would have to be with that dancing with that Victor Moore, Helen Broderick, and Eric Bloor. But after Top Hat, Follow the Fleet, and the rest, it's a disappointment. Blame it primarily upon the music. Jerome Kern has shadowboxed with jazz when he should have been trying to pick out a few companion pieces to smoke gets in your eyes and I won't dance. Maybe we have no ear for music. Do we hear cries of no, no? But right now we cannot even whistle a bar of a fine romance and that's about the catchiest and brightest melody in the show. The others, Pick Yourself Up, Bojangles in Harlem, The Way You Look Tonight, and Never Gonna Dance, are merely adequate or worse. It is neither good Kern nor good swing. Wow, that was very harsh, but a lot of the reviewers actually did like this film. It was really popular. I had to look hard to find anybody saying anything bad about it. So I looked so hard that I actually found this on-set account from a script clerk who published her entire diary of what it was like being on the set of Swing Time. Wow, you see, all these people keep diaries. Didn't uh, Charlton Heston keep a diary on Ben-Hur, too? He had a live journal. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And I cut this down a lot because it was a very big spread. I'll read you the exciting parts. May 11th. Victor Moore split his trousers, reaching for a quarter. (laughs) (laughs) May 14th. On location in the railroad yards, looked like a hobo convention. All the bows wanted Mr. Astaire's autograph. One broke down, told why he wanted five or six, and said he could sell them for enough money to get a good start east. 
Wow. By the way, I like that they call them bows. Bows. It was with a little apostrophe. <laughs> bows. Yeah. All those bows over there. May 30th, Memorial Day. No scenes, but Fred worked rehearsing dances. Holidays mean nothing in that man's life. Wow. Like David Letterman. That's grim. June 17th, Ginger gives a birthday party for her maid. June 22nd, Fred <laughs> and Ginger ride onto the set in bicycles and get yelled at. June 25th, Fred wore a new kind of tie. Windsor, I believe they call them. Wow. And then July seventeenth, <laughs> company lined up at attention when Fred came on set in blackface makeup he'll wear in the Bojangles of Harlem number. Ginger hummed the Chocolate Soldier. Ooh! If only the nineteen thirties had a podcast like Yo Is This Racist, uh, they would have a field day with that one. So here we are at number ninety on the list Probably of AF- the most least famous. Right. I would argue, yeah, and but yet it is a movie that consistently comes up in these lists. Um Entertainment Weekly's top 100 films, it was like you mentioned before and the National Film Registry uh by the Library of Congress. Amy, do you believe that it belongs in the top 100 films? Well, it failed a test that has not failed us yet so far. Okay, which is There's no Simpsons clip. There's wow. no Simpsons reference of this anywhere. They do do a reference to a song from Shall We Dance? Let's uh, you say tomato, I say tomato. Mm-hmm. We have that if anybody wants to hear Marge sing. Uh, sure, why not? Why break the streak? So if you go for oysters and I go for oysters, I'll order oysters and cancel the oysters. For we know we need each other, so we better call the calling off. off. Let's call the whole thing off. I mean, so that's an argument that Fred and and Ginger deserve to be in some sort of notable list. I'm still not convinced it should be this film, though. Well, I'm going to go – I don't know the other films enough to even judge it against, right? I can say that I enjoyed watching this. I didn't know what to expect. It was the first time I've ever really watched a black-and-white musical. Um, And so in that level, I've purely enjoyed the fun of it, the like – the loose, fancy freeness to the film. I love the music. I was impressed by their dancing. Obviously, there are some issues with the film as well, but I don't know if there's something better. I can't definitively say, like, well, why is this there and not that other collaboration? Or why is this Bubsby Berkeley movie not in there? I don't know it. So, Well, I want you to watch some Bubsby Berkeley. I know, I do too. But I am telling you, if you start Googling Bubsby Berkeley clips on YouTube, Look out for the one with him and Al Jolson, which might be more racist than anything I've ever seen, which breaks my heart because I love Busby Berkeley. But it's a number that they did called Going to Heaven on a Mule. Okay. Where there is dancing girls dressed like watermelon and a fried chicken machine. And I think, how did my favorite director make this? (laughs) So, Amy, I know that we have been going in a up and down order on the AFI list, but I thought – Let's add some chaos into the mix. Maybe it's just that I'm being affected by Jurassic World and seeing Ian Malcolm again, but I want to add some chaos in. And I you, love chaos. Yes. So we went to a chaos maker. Um, tell me about what we have in front of us here. What we have here is a small, heavy, golden object. It is a hundred-sided die <laughs> that I found on a website called SkullSplitter.com. And I have to say that when I ordered this 100-sided die, I didn't even know a die could have 100 sides. If for people trying to picture this die, imagine a golf ball yes. with numbers all around it. I actually posted a picture of it on the Unspooled Twitter account. You can take a look at it. I believe it's called a Zoshi Hedron. 
Zoshi Hedron? Yes. A hundred-sided doing- <laughs> die. Well, this die is very powerful and potent because I did not know that when I ordered it, I would be getting thrilling letters from the man who sells these die saying things like, the die was forged due to the dwarf honesty in dice accord. Apparently that's oh, well, a thing okay. he says sure. that they have and that they will roll true for us. He survived an unexpected goblin attack in the making of these. I have never wow. been excited to get a your order has shipped email as I did from this guy who signs off Andrar the dwarvish dice smith. But he has forged this object for us, and it will now guide us through the AFI Top 100 list. I believe this is magic, and it's going to be guiding us thematically as well as uh, creatively. So let's roll that die. Whoa, it's rolling a lot. All right, what do we see? I don't even know how you tell. (laughs) It's really rolling. It's rolling too much. It's a hundred-sided die does not really have a a place to land, uh, as we're finding. Right. It's basically what? a golf ball. Yeah, it's just mo- it's moving. Oh my god! <laughs> so this experiment, this hundred slide. Yeah, we gotta stop it. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Where is it? Okay. It's on ninety-three. Ninety-three. All right, we're staying close. Ninety-three is da da the French Connection, nineteen seventy-one. Ooh, Ooh that'll be fun. All right, Popeye Doyle. Here we come. Here I've we actually come. seen the French Connection. So there we go. (laughs) Uh, How impressed are you of that? Um, All right. So we will see you next week for number 93, The French French Connection. Connection. Okay. Our listener challenge for next week is come up with a tagline for French Connection. When French Connection came out, they didn't really have taglines, or maybe I'm just making that up. But, you know, something like, in space, no one can hear you scream. Or for Fargo, a lot can happen in the middle of nowhere. Something like that. Come up with your own tagline for French Connection. Give us a call at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. And give us your tagline for the French Connection. Thank you all for listening to Unspooled. A big uh, thanks to our producer, Josh Richmond, for helping us put this entire show together and everybody here at Earwolf. But more importantly, you. If you like this show, please rate and review it. That helps us subscribe on Apple uh, Podcasts. It helps us tremendously. Paul, my favorite thing is still just people tweeting at us and saying, like, I can't wait to watch this next movie with you. It's, it's our magical club. It really, really is. So thank you for joining us. Arnie Niekamp from the Improv Fantasy Podcast, Hello from the Magic Tavern. I fell through a dimensional portal behind a Burger King in Chicago into the magical land of Foon, and I started a podcast. Season three has just begun with a brand new adventure to defeat the Dark Lord. If you're a new listener or you've fallen behind, season three is a great jumping on point. And we've got great guests like Justin McElroy. I sound like a fancy college professor. Fake nuts. <laughs> Rachel Bloom. You all see my collection of men corpses and one woman. Felicia Day and Colton Dunn. You've seen <coughs> me have intercourse with a variety of species. It's a bummer. Andy Daly. You have the members of Genesis listed, but Phil Collins yeah. has crossed out and then circled and crossed out again. Ah, uh, yes. I have killed Phil Collins twice. Thomas Middleditch. <laughs> Oh, Jesus! I mean, Jazos! <laughs> Ruler of the eighth 
circle. And that's just the beginning. Season three of Hello from the Magic Tavern is out now. Listen in Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.